Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette and I'm with Tom and Paul today to take you through the latest media law headlines. We've got a lot to discuss, including revelations relating to Jimmy Savile from The Sun, the response to the sexist reporting of Angela Rayner MP by the Mail on Sunday, and the ongoing defamation trial in the US between Johnny Depp and his ex-wife Amber Heard over allegations of domestic violence. But I want to start with the um, news that Musk has agreed a deal with Twitter to buy the platform for $44 billion and take the company private. Musk refers to himself as a free speech absolutist, which implies that Musk's Twitter will have less moderation and possibly the reinstatement of banned individuals. He's also promised to make the algorithm for prioritising tweets public. There are a number of privacy concerns that have emerged from Musk's takeover. First... Musk has alluded to plans to authenticate all humans, which could pose problems for anonymity. Additionally, Musk will soon be able to access all Twitter user data, including IP addresses and the content of direct messages. Twitter's DMs are notably not end-to-end encrypted. While Musk has announced that free speech and transparency are his top priorities, it's unclear exactly what kind of speech he wants to protect. In theory, there's nothing to stop him accessing direct messages of of what are now his users. So um, there's a lot to, I guess, discuss here. Maybe it's best to start with human authentication and um, and how that fits in with the anonymity debate. Okay, so the the um, pro of anonymity is that um, it allows for uh, certain types of whistleblowing speech. Um, It allows uh, victims of um, wrongs to be able to speak uh, without. Hopefully, without without comeback. Um, the the cons of anonymity are, of course, that it works in reverse. That an anonymous person uh, may be able to um, uh, defame someone, interfere with their private life, and then when the person who is wronged wants to take action, there are sort of procedural hurdles to overcome in order to discover the true identity of that individual, so that they can be sued. And we know from claimant litigators that actually this is a very significant problem because when they try, when the the, uh, claimant solicitor tries to obtain that information on who the individual actually is, platforms like Twitter and Facebook are notoriously uncooperative, difficult to reach, uh, which sort of frustrates uh, justice uh, in, in progress. Of course, the other uh, con of uh, anonymity, um, or rather not even just anonymity, is the use of so-called spam bots um, that uh, are able to mimic uh, or appear as if they are real human beings uh, in order to um, deliver misinformation and disinformation, um, but, but enough about our culture secretary. Do you have any comments on the free speech issue with regards to accessing private messages? Because this is this is something that obviously wasn't so much of a concern when Twitter was owned by its shareholders, not one single owner. Obviously, we don't know much about exactly how this would play out, but it's maybe worth um, raising the issues now. Well, yeah, this is a real problem. And I mean, this this has been a problem for a long time. It's a problem with even... even um, um, other apps that claim to be end-to-end uh, encrypted. There's always a danger that uh, those systems enable someone to be able to gain access to that information. I'm afraid it's a problem generally with any kind of communication that takes a form other than uh, carrier pigeon. 
uh, that um, individuals may be able to access it. it. I think what what this tells us is that as we as a society try to become more informed about the use of technologies that we build into our education, the realisation that someone could be reading the messages that we send uh, and that we need to think that through um, as well. We've got to stop being so trustful of these platforms that we think that this kind of uh, activity can't take place. Yeah, just generally on the Musk takeover, I think the major concern for freedom of speech here is that and indeed for privacy here um is that a a single individual is going to have the power to dictate policy over one of the world's largest communication platforms if not the largest um certainly one that that, that has probably the greatest impact on political speech and thus indirectly on political agendas across the world. Um, And this one individual is, of course, an inordinately rich individual, a billionaire, um, and thus is drawn from a particular class of individual billionaires who have particular interests. Um, So there is an awful lot of power political power that simply by virtue of conducting a transaction he can very easily afford given the prodigious wealth that he has built up um musk has taken taken control has taken that power for himself and we have no idea what he is going to do with it we have some indications of what he says he will do with it i saw one interview with him where I couldn't make head nor tail of what he was saying, other than he mentioned the words free speech quite a lot, and then seemed to say that there were some things that should be restricted and other things that shouldn't be restricted, and he was in favour of timeouts. Um, so I I, I, I I, don't know what he's planning. I, I very much doubt that Musk knows what he's planning. Um, it looks impulsive, uh, and we're all going to have to wait and see uh, what becomes of it, but it's... Um, it's not something I've got a hugely positive feeling about, I have to say. No, but let, let's just bear in mind from the free speech perspective that what we're talking about here are audience rights such as they are in speech rather than speaker rights. None of us have a right to demand a an efficient means of delivering information. So that that is not a right that's under threat here because it doesn't exist. But what... But, but, what, where, but where the parallel is, I think, is in a rich individual controlling the flow of messages, supporting some messages, not supporting others. And that has been a problem that's existed in this country since at least the 19th century with the rise of press barons controlling the information that society receives through its newspapers. And we haven't got to grips yet with how to deal with the press barons that deal with that, do that. Our democracy, such as it is, is undermined on a daily basis by newspapers gaining access to our politicians and by our politicians currying favour with those newspapers uh, in order to stay in power and increase their power. So the, the, the Elon Musk debate, such as it is, is to reinforce the microcosm that already exists in the way that communication happens in this country.
Paul, I think that segues really nicely into the Angela Rayner story. Uh, but I just want to stick with social media quickly um, to mention that the Facebook Oversight Board has upheld the decision to ban former President Donald Trump from the platform that followed his social media activity that was held partly responsible for inciting the violence um, on the January 6th Capitol riots in which five people died. Mm. Uh, come back to the UK then with the Angela Rayner issue. Um, listeners, I'm sure will be aware of the Mail on Sunday's article that was ran at the start of this week, um, start of, uh, at the end of April 2022, um, in which the journalist said that uh, Rayner's legs are part of the reason that she's a better public speaker than Boris Johnson. Hacktoff lamented the article for reporting, and I quote, hearsay distraction techniques employed by a woman just sitting in a room doing her job. Mm. Hacktoff went on to reveal that Ipso, the press-controlled regulator, has never upheld a complaint of sexism against the press. Yeah. Paul, you are part of Hacktoff. Um, perhaps you'd like to make some comments. Well... Uh, Ipso has never upheld a complaint of sexism. Ipso has never issued a fine uh, against its newspapers for either a serious or systematic breach of standards. Uh, Ipso, as uh, Steve Barnett and uh, Brian Cathcart rightly point out, uh, is merely um, a trade complaints handling service. It's not a proper regulator. It's not independent. It doesn't have the power to force newspapers to comply with its uh, decisions. Uh, what this story shows uh, is the very real need for us to act on these problems within press regulation and to act now. The other frightening statistic, of course, that comes from Hacked Off is that um, you have got more chance of winning the lottery than you have of having a complaint upheld by Ipso more chance of winning the lottery. In what sense can Ipso be said to be doing its job as an independent press standards organisation if you've got more chance of winning the lottery than you have of having your complaint upheld? The very idea is just so ridiculous and laughable that we need to take action and we need to take it now. In respect to the Angela Boehner story, of course, what, what the Daily Mail has done and the Mail on Sunday is to just double down on their story. So their response, their public response, has been not one of contrition, because that's not what the Daily Mail does, but actually to say, well, we were right, because Angela Rayner doesn't see the story as a problem. I mean, let's be clear, she does. But Angela Rayner doesn't see the story as a problem. She's laughed it off. Well, no, the story is a problem because it communicates something about the misogynistic attitudes in this country that have been funneled through the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. What it also says is damaging to our democratic way of life. If we are to reduce women to mere objects, as the Daily Mail does in that story, if we are to say that women appearing as MPs is of itself distracting, then what we are doing is driving women out of Parliament and driving women away from the the very real need for them to be um, politicians. 
the agenda that the Mail and the Mail on Sunday and other newspapers, it's not just them, progresses very well is to drive sensitive individuals out of politics. We need sensitive people in politics. What we have in the moment is the desensitized. We have them sat in cabinet. We have them making decisions. These are not people who are sympathetic to the needs of others, as sensitive people are. They are the very reverse. There is one other significant problem with this story and its impact, and that is the effect it's had, quite quite apart from the fact of the sexism, I agree with everything Paul said, um, is it's achieved what I think is its primary aim, which was to distract the Westminster Commentariat from things that are more damaging to the government. Daily Mail has, in essence, taken one for the right-wing team here. It's created a, a story that it knows will provoke outrage, and suddenly we're not talking about Partygate. We're not talking about the cost of living crisis in anything like the level of detail that a properly investigative press and commentary would be doing at this point. And it is absolutely no coincidence that we go to the polls this week in local elections. This was the perfectly timed dead cat thrown across the table, in my view. And yes, it is deplorable. Yes, there should be complaints about it. But for the love of all that is politically holy, let's not obsess about Angela Rayner's legs until after the elections, because that's the real aim here, to distract from the political stories of the day um, where the government is in trouble. And yet we've seen in the past week calls from the press itself for a change in regulatory standards uh, with regard to, to defamation laws. I'm talking here about the Miriam Jones revelations in The Guardian that The Sun in fact had everything to bring a story to the public about Jimmy Savile being a paedophile in 2008 when Savile was still alive. But they were prevented from doing so, and I quote uh, Jones's article here, because Britain's arcane libel laws protect the wicked. Apparently, uh, the Sun was advised at the time that libel action would cost a million pounds and that loss was inevitable, in part because the system, and I quote, rewarded Savile's deliberate targeting of vulnerable victims. So, obviously, this whole article, Jones's article, is about defamation law. Um, and a call for reform. But I wonder, is is it about defamation law? Or is the question really, why did the son not go to the police when they realised, if they had all this evidence, when they realised that um, they couldn't go ahead with their scoop? Okay, so um, let, let's just talk about these arcane uh, defamation laws, shall we? Uh, these uh, laws originate pr principally in the common law, although there have been statutory developments over the years. But to simplify what the law of defamation is trying to do, it is to achieve a delicate balance between uh, the right to speak uh, and the right to a reputation, uh, or rather the right not to have your reputation completely destroyed uh, by uh, bad press. Um in circumstances where that destruction is is undue, where it is unjustified, 
Okay, so um, the, the scenario that, that uh, Marion Jones sets up in tantalising form is that newspapers had gathered all of this evidence against Jimmy Savile, which would have proved that he was a paedophile, that he was dangerous, that he was doing all of these things that we now know that he was. Now, um, the 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 wrong that um, Savile is doing or was doing is is a criminal matter. So the question is, well, 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 why did the son, if it had all of this material, why did it not just pass that material over to the um, proper authorities so that they could investigate and bring Savile to justice? Well, the answer to that is simple: the son had invested a lot of money. And its principal obligations as a newspaper in the private sector is to its shareholders. So when it spends money, it does so because it wants to make money. And it wants to make money through revelations. So it was never going to hand this um, file over to the police until it had published its exclusive. Now, if it publishes its exclusive that Jimmy Savile is a paedophile, it then takes the risk that it has to go to court to prove what it said in one form or another. And there are different standards of proof, as we know. It has to prove more than more than not the balance of probabilities that what it was saying was right, which is actually a lesser standard than the police have when they go to criminal uh, trial. So why didn't it just take the risk? I mean, the, the, the son has published lots of things over the years that have proven to be untrue and it has lost lots of litigation and, and a million pounds, as as my uh, co-commentator uh, Tom Bennett said, a million pounds for the sun is not the same as a million pounds for, for us. Um, Well, uh, it can only... Uh, well, w- one possible reason for that is that it concluded that actually its justification defence was actually quite weak in the circumstances. Or it didn't have enough information to actually go to to um, justify the decision uh, to take the risk. So there's a lot in what Marion Jones is saying here that sort of requires an explanation. It's not as clear cut as uh, he is making it out to be. When I was at school and uh, I explained to some of my fellow pupils that I was a vegetarian... I would from time to usually be met with a barrage of hostility. And I'm no stranger to the uh, uh, anecdote that Hitler was a vegetarian. Um, And I I think there's something of that sentiment in this article from Jones, um, using an extreme example of somebody evil to try to demonize uh, either an activity or a process or something of that ilk. Um, because Jimmy Savile was an evil man and because libel law got in the way of us um, publishing a story, therefore libel law is also evil. Um, evil people can use perfectly good processes to do evil things. That is what, they, that is what makes them evil. Um, and yes, we should look for ways to plug loopholes and make it more difficult for... Uh, evil people to do their evil things. But that doesn't mean that we uh, necessarily have to uh, amend laws that are designed to protect people from the overreach of the press so that the press have 
what they want, which is the complete impunity to publish anything absent any possible sanction. And let's 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 not beat about the bush here. That is what the, the tabloid press in particular want, but the press generally want. It's what they've been asking for and campaigning for for years. It's why we don't have statutory privacy laws. It's why whenever there's a statutory reform to uh, defamation law, normally it's to weaken claimant's capacity to bring claims. We saw major changes in that respect from the Defamation Act of 2013, all in the name of enhancing uh, the freedom of speech primarily of the press. Um, and this is just another step in that direction. Um, it is uh, an argument that's put out there to try to give some rocket fuel to the government's latest idea, which is yet another change to libel laws in order to protect us against these uh, slaps, these strategic lawsuits against public participation, of which we've suddenly been hearing so much in the last uh, couple of months. Um, and, you know, when we think about why we're hearing about these things in the last couple of months, see my previous comments on Partygate. Um, I don't doubt for a moment that Marion Jones is deeply troubled by what he discovered in his investigations into Jimmy Savile. He was involved, yes, in putting together this aborted son story. He was also involved in the Newsnight investigation that eventually did expose uh, the wrongdoing of Jimmy Savile. And no doubt he has, he has been deeply affected by it and found it very, very troubling. Um, and, and I think, you know, he, he has done a service um, in uh, ensuring that story did eventually become public. But there are questions here that need to be answered, as Paul rightly says. Why, if all this evidence was available, did the journalists involved not go to the police? Why was the son not willing to risk a million pounds on this when it's willing to risk millions of pounds in far more trivial cases? If there were, you know, if ever there was a hill to die on, surely if you really believed in this story, this would have been the one uh, to do it. If you, you if you thought, you know, to to blaze with the risk, we're ethical journalists. We have an obligation to write things in the public interest. The son has published far more egregious things uh, uh, about uh, individuals who did nothing wrong. And it has um, published very, very libelous things uh, with much uh, less serious subject matter um, and has paid the price for it. Why not on this occasion? Um, so those questions, you know, one day do, do have to be answered if the story is to have any credence. But I don't think it does have much credibility, I'm afraid. Um, because, yet again, I think this is just... Um, aimed at securing a very particular political end. And a reminder to our listeners, actually, since uh, we're on the subject, that the government's consultation on the uh, slap-related defamation proposals is open until the 19th of May. So uh, a fairly short window to get responses in, but if you do want to respond to that, um, now's the time. Okay, so in the same week that Marion Jones makes these disclosures, we see Ipso fail to uphold a complaint by parents of a child that had died uh, in a gas explosion against a story that said wrongly that the parents were to blame for that child's manslaughter. Now that is a story that demonstrates exactly why and it is the perfect response to Marion Jones 
exactly why defamation laws exist for a reason. Now, uh, I, I should be clear, uh, those parents can't afford to go to court to um, pursue a defamation claim because very few of us can. But let's not forget that newspapers do not just confine their gaze to tackling oligarchs. They don't confine their gaze to tackling evildoers. What they do on a regular basis is write about people who have been involved in something that they think will tickle the fancy of their readers. Now, more often than not, the thing that comes to the attention of the newspapers is death or tragedy or something of that nature. And that is not something that happens just to public figures. It happens to all of us. And there's a reason why Ipso receives hundreds of thousands of complaints. Because there aren't hundreds of thousands of public figures out there, however you define that term. But there are hundreds of thousands of us out there. And it's us that the press are interested in. Every time something happens to us that they think is interesting to their readers. There's another important point here, and that is this ridiculous notion that newspapers exist as a crime-busting agency. Newspapers do not exist as a crime-busting agency for a very important reason. They lack both the authority and the necessary accountability to be a crime-busting agency. The police are regulated by us. They are accountable to us through very important mechanisms. I'm not saying those mechanisms are perfect. They're far from that. But they are accountable to us. They are agents of the citizenry. They exist to protect us. The press doesn't. The press operates by privately owned people. It operates in the private sector and it operates according to private interests. There is no sense in which newspapers are equipped to act as a crime-busting authority. That's not the point. What newspapers want to do is to make a splash by calling people names. That's not how law works. That's not how justice works. So we need to drop this idea that the press need even greater protections in order to protect the public from crime. They're not doing that. There's no sense in which they're doing that. Another splash that, of course, we're all very familiar with was the son's revelation that Matt Hancock was having an affair with his aide. Uh, and, and that leads me on to the story that the Information Commissioner's Office has found insufficient evidence to prosecute two suspected whistleblowers over the leaked CCTV footage from the former Health Secretary's uh, office in the Department for Health and Social Care, which showed him kissing his aide. Uh, the ICO believes that the leaks, the leaked images were given to the Sun by someone who recorded CCTV footage screens from a mobile phone. Six mobile phones were seized under warrants, but none of them had any CCTV footage. The Sun editor, Victoria Newton, has welcomed the closure of the investigation, calling it an outrageous abuse of state power, which risked having a chilling impact on whistleblowers and the free press. Whereas the ICO pointed out that it had a legal duty to carry out an impartial assessment of the evidence available, given the seriousness of the report and the wide implications it potentially had for the security of information across governments. Um, 
you know, these two stories coming out at the same time, I think, are worthy of comment. Well, I think I think there's one thing that needs to be said about this, and that is the dis- the selective disclosures that the Sun editor and others relies upon here to justify press freedom. That somehow this is a victory for the public interest in a in a free press. Well, I'm afraid it's not. Do we really believe that the Sun or anyone else would have disclosed this information about Matt Hancock if it didn't suit their purposes to do so? There's an underlying political agenda at stake in these kind of cases, and we know that because of Partygate. Partygate tells us clearly that the press will act when it feels like it. How do we know that? Because it took them over a year to disclose that these parties, these illegal parties, had taken place. And why is that? Because members of the press were at these parties. So the very idea that we can trust the press to act in our best interest, to reveal to us when power is corrupted, is nonsense. We've seen this in the response to Partygate, particularly from sections of the right-wing press, that are now trying to defame, there's no other word for it, defame Keir Starmer by saying that he was also at an illegal party. And they're using images of him with Frank Dobson, except they're cutting out Frank Dobson. And the reason why they're cutting out Frank Dobson is Dobson died in 2019. But somehow these images are proof that Keir Starmer was at these illegal parties. So once again, this is more evidence of press abuse, not press freedom. I'd much rather the ICO, I trust the ICO to a greater extent to investigate these issues than I do uh, newspapers. And the ICO was right to investigate this. Why on earth were images of a Secretary of State, a minister, in his own office, how did they reach newspapers? That's really troubling. Yes, in this case, the information was disclosed to the public. But how often is this happening in order to blackmail members of parliament? Or what safeguards exist to prevent members of parliament being blackmailed? What would have prevented the sun from turning to Matt Hancock and saying, we have these images of you, we can destroy your career unless you start to make decisions that benefit us? And the answer is, there are no safeguards. Nothing. So actually, what the ICO is investigating is incredibly important because these are safeguards that ensure the democratic process remains intact and not just subject to the whims of press barons and their journalists. I'm going to leave the UK just for a second um, to discuss the ongoing defamation trial between actor Johnny Depp and his ex-wife Amber Heard over allegations of domestic violence. The trial's now in its third week. Depp's team started, and I think it's fair to say that the social media response appears to indicate that sentiment is falling in Depp's favour. Now, this is partly because Miss Heard hasn't had a chance to respond yet, Um, Depp lost his case against The Sun in the UK High Court over allegations of domestic violence in 2020, with the court finding that the balance tipped in favour of Miss Heard's account on 12 of 14 instances of violence, and the appeal was refused. 
In the US, Depp has to overcome a higher threshold for defamation as he needs to show not only that Ms. Heard's allegations are false, but also that they were made with malice. Now, we're limited as to what we can say about this because obviously we don't have a judgment, so there's nothing to really bite into. But one thing I think is worth discussing is the fact that this trial is being heard in front of a jury. Jury trials in the UK stopped in 2013, um, and I wanted to get your thoughts and opinions on maybe the merits of jury trials or, or how you think a jury might affect the outcome of this case. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is the key issue. So the 2013 Act effectively removed jury trial from defamation cases in the UK. There is still a provision whereby it is possible procedurally to have a jury trial, um, but uh, the presumption is against it and it's in practice going to be extremely difficult to argue for it and uh, only a limited number of uh, defendants would want it or claimants would want it. Um, so uh, I think it makes a significant difference. And, and I think the big thing that we're seeing in this US iteration of the trial is that it's for show. Um, I mean, it's being broadcast. There are highlight reels available on YouTube. And you're absolutely right, Colette, that much of the spin that's being placed on these is very pro-DEP. Uh, virtually every video that, has, that, that, that I've seen online uh, that's been put on social media um, is, you know, Johnny Depp destroys such and such a lawyer, Johnny Depp's psychiatrist destroys this lawyer, Amber Heard's, you know, arguments taken to pieces by Depp. No, it's all very pro-DEP. And uh, I, I think the format suits him. You know, he's playing for the camera, he's playing for the gallery, he's playing for an audience. Uh, and I've no doubt that that's, that's why uh, he's chosen to bring uh, suit in the US. But um, let's face it, we know what the evidence says. The evidence has been considered by a high court judge here. And the evidence indicates, on balance of probabilities, that Depp beat his wife. And we covered it on the podcast. And that evidence hasn't changed. The situation hasn't changed. Will a jury in the US be persuaded by the performances of these two people in court when they've each had their say? Maybe. I don't know. Go one way or the other. That's the thing with jury trials. We've no idea. Well, we know where the kind of court of public opinion on social media is at the moment. Um, but, know, how much of that is just because you've got a lot of diehard Johnny Depp fans? Um, uh, I don't know. And, uh, you know, I, I, I say this as somebody who has always enjoyed Johnny Depp's performances in movies. I've enjoyed his films. Uh, I very much wish that he had not beat his wife. I would like to be able to say that I think Johnny Depp is an excellent actor and he seems to be a decent man. Unfortunately, I can't. I can say that he's an excellent actor and he seems not to be a decent man um, because he beat his wife. And that, that is the way things are. And I'm afraid sometimes we have to accept uh, that the people that we wish were good are not. Um, uh, it's going to take a while for that message, if it ever does, to get through to uh, those who are putting these social media videos up. Returning to the UK then for the final two stories I want to cover in this newscast, just to briefly mention that... 
there has been a last minute change ahead of the much anticipated Wagatha Christie libel trial scheduled to begin next week between Rebecca Vardy and Colleen Rooney. Vardy has suggested that her agent may have been responsible for the leaked stories to The Sun. Until now, Vardy has said that she was not admitting responsibility for leaking the material and did not know who did. In an updated witness statement, Vardy suggests that her agent, Caroline Watts, may have handed over information. Counsel for Vardy, Hugh Tomlinson QC, said this does not change anything substantive about Miss Vardy's defence. She's not admitted that she knew or knows that Miss Watt was, was responsible. But given Miss Watt is no longer in contact with the defence team, it appears that that may be a possibility. Uh, so as I say, the trial is due to start next week, and we will, of course, keep you updated um, as it progresses. Finally then, to mention the judgments in Underwood and Bounty, which was handed down by Mr Justice Nicklin on the 13th of April 2022, the first and second claimants are mother and child. Bounty was a pregnancy and support club that went into administration in 2020. And the second offendant was the Hampshire Hospital's NHS Trust. Uh, and it was against the second defendant that this judgment relates. The claim relates to an incident that happened on the 16th of October 2017, where a bounty representative appeared by the first claimant's postnatal bedside read various medical files and then offered to take a first family portrait of uh, the mother and child. The claimants obtained judgment in default against Bounty in 2020. This judgment relates to the allegation that the second defendant, NHS Trust, made the claimant's private information available to the Bounty representative through culpable omission. It was accepted that private medical information was contained in the papers accessed by the Bounty rep and on balance, it's likely that the bounty rep saw some or all of this information. However, the NHS, the NHS Trust was not found to be liable for the bounty representative obtaining the second defendant's name and gender by failing to prevent the bounty rep from gaining access to the relevant documents. The NHS Trust's acts could not be regarded as making those documents available to the bounty representative generally. The bounty rep had acted inappropriately by looking at those documents, and if she'd asked the NA any of the NHS staff if she could read them, permission would rightly have been refused. The NHS Trust is therefore not liable for the unauthorised and probably unlawful acts of the bounty rep, nor did the second defendant process the claimant's data unlawfully for the same reasons. The alleged breach of the seventh data protection principle, which is failing to take proper technical and organisational measures to prevent unauthorised processing of or access to the claimant's personal data, was rejected on the grounds that the logical extension of such a precedent would require all patient data to be strictly withheld, which would be disproportionate, disproportionate unnecessary and inefficient in a hospital environment probably the most interesting privacy judgment that we've had since the last newscast. Um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts and comments on it. Yeah, um, this isn't a misuse of private information case. Um, it's pleaded in misuse of private information. It's got nothing to do with misuse of private information. Certainly not as against the second defendant. Um, the issue is that the second defendant has acted in a way that has enabled the first defendant to have access to uh, info, information and to the individual. Um, and the, by far the more distressing issue here 
for uh, the the mother uh, of of this child who, whose privacy was invaded, and it certainly was in the layperson's terms in the hospital, is that there was this intrusion by her bedside within hours of uh, giving birth after an extraordinarily long and difficult labour. Um, it's an intrusion case. It's an intrusion case as against the first defendant, Bounty, which cannot proceed for two reasons. One, Bounty doesn't exist anymore. It's gone into administration. And second, um, that we don't have a tort of intrusion in this country. You couldn't plead it anyway. So it has to be pleaded as a misuse of private information case or a data protection breach case against the first defendant simply because we do not have the tort that we should have to deal with this. And that's why this is such an interesting case. It's a prime example. It's a very, very similar case to the Kay and Robertson case from 1991 that is held up as the egregious example of an intrusion that occurs and, and the lack of uh, a doctrine to deal with it. As against the second defendant here, the hospital that has, by leaving notes around the bedside, made it possible for information to be gleaned, I'm afraid this is just a case of trying to sue the person with the deepest pockets who's not an administration, who's vaguely connected to what went on. There is quite, as Mr. Justice Nicklin quite rightly identifies, nothing in the tort of misuse of private information that would uh, uh, attribute liability to the hospital in these circumstances. The appropriate cause of action would be negligence. That what the hospital has done here is negligently leave information in a place where it is visible to uh, employees of the first defendant and made it possible for uh, access uh, to the information and to the individuals uh, to, to be gotten. The problem with a negligence case, and that's probably why negligence wasn't pleaded, is that the harm suffered by the defendant here is insufficient to mount a negligence claim. The, the harm suffered by the claimant is insufficient to mount a negligence claim. Um, it needs... Uh, claimant would need to demonstrate a recognised psychiatric condition and not just the level of distress that we normally see pleaded uh, as representing damage in uh, a misuse of private information case. Now, there is a potentially very interesting argument, and this is the bit that if I were uh, teaching the scenario to undergraduate students, I would put up for discussion in the seminar, which is, could an argument be made in these circumstances that because there is no intrusion taught, because the claimant has suffered a degree of distress that may well compromise psychological integrity, which is a protected uh, aspect of Article 8 under the European Convention, and since a negligence action is not available absent proof of more serious damage, could the argument be made that English law is not compatible with the Convention, and thus this is a gap that needs to be plugged either by recognising a novel tort or more likely in these particular circumstances as against the second defendant by adding into negligence doctrine a provision enabling recovery for lesser forms of damage um, or damage of lesser severity. Um, I think there is an argument for incremental development of negligence law to allow for damages to be recovered in this sort of scenario because I think everything else fits. 
Um, you could certainly have the argument of duty of care, breach of duty, causation is, 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 is fairly straightforward. Um, the issue here is the type of damage. Um, and I'd be you know, interested theoretically in that argument in an undergraduate seminar. But as for um, application of existing doctrine, this case is textbook. The judgment is textbook and dealt with impressively concisely, uh, I have to say for which we should all be very grateful to the judge. Okay, that wraps up everything I wanted to talk about today. Thank you very much for your excellent insights, as always, Tom and Paul. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with new newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.